9 of John chapter 1. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples and when he saw Jesus passing by he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come, Jesus replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethesda. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked, come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Father, we honor your word this morning. We stand, we stand and uh, receive what you want to say today. We want to hear from you. Would you speak. Would you speak. Thank you that you're among us, God. And as, you're, as you long to, Lord, just to overwhelm us with your goodness and your kindness, Lord, I pray that we'd be open to what you would want to say, what you would want to do as we open your word this morning. Give us a further revelation. Take us further. Take us deeper. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for standing. Love what was sang uh, this morning. Um, that song, Now You're Lifted Up in Glory, I especially love that song. I'm a real homebird. And whenever you sing a song that's been uh, birthed in your home nation, it's even more exciting to sing it. Um, whether that's right or wrong, that's a different matter. But that was Mark, Mark Ferguson wrote that song, and as we worshipped to that song, I was just reminded of how incredible it is that right now Jesus is in the highest place before the Father praying for you, standing for you. That's why, that, that's why in John 14 he said, because the Holy Spirit is going to come, because I have to go to the Father. And because I'm going to the Father, you're going to do greater things. And that's incredible, incredible to get a 
try to get a picture, an image of the fact that Jesus stands before the Father praying for you, interceding even the very groanings of your heart, the very, those things that you can't even articulate, those things that you can't even bring into a form, a sentence. He's interceding for you, praying for you. Jesus is praying for you today. John chapter 1 is a phenomenal chapter uh, of the Bible. I love it today that we, uh, you've, already, you've, already got the, you've already got half of it. But I love it that maybe whenever you're making dinner, just before your dinner, that maybe you would read John chapter 1. And maybe you're, you don't have time, maybe you're straight home for the dinner. But whether it's husband or wife who is cooking, maybe the person that's not cooking, just read John chapter 1. This is a phenomenal chapter of the Bible. It is 51 verses long, but it is full of incredible truth. And it starts off, John, the writer, starts off, his, his, uh, starts off this chapter, starts off his gospel message by saying, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God from the beginning, verse 2 tells us. Verse 4 tells us of John chapter 1, in him, the word, in him was life. And he was going to be the light for all men. And it moves on to to, to verse 9. This He was the true light and he was going to bring light to everyone. To all creation was going to have opportunity to experience the true light that was coming. Verse 12, stunning verse, tells us that because he's coming... You will have the right, you will have the ability, the opportunity to become children of God. And then verse 14, maybe the most stunning of all, God becomes a man. The word became flesh. The word took on this, this word that in him was life, in him was the light that was going to be for all men. Given us the right to become children of God, to come back into relationship with the Father. He was actually coming to dwell among us. He was coming to take on our very nature and tabernacle among us, make his home among us. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Full of grace, full of truth. And it is absolutely no wonder, no wonder, no surprise when we get to first 29 that John the Baptist says, look, stop, pay attention, here he is. Here is the one that is in him is life. In him is the light of all men. In him you can come back into relationship with the Father. He's came, God, he became a man and came to dwell among us. Behold, stop, pay attention, come closer, lean in, experience something. Because here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What I love to do as I start, as I read through the scripture and increasingly is to try to experience what was what would this have been like hearing this with first century ears it's really hard in our western 21st century mindset we get caught up in looking at the scriptures looking at the word through our 21st century western eyes i feel like i've missed out so much of what the father is saying what jesus is revealing because i'm looking at it through 21st century lens but I want to know what, what would it have been like to hear with, with ears the first century. What would it have been like to hear the Lamb of God? Thank, we have 
we have this incredible privilege that we live on the other side of the cross. We know what John was referring to. We know what John, John meant when he spoke of Jesus as the Lamb of God. The clues were right the way through the Old Testament, right back to Exodus. I don't know if, if this would have been the train of thought for some of the Jewish people that, that heard this proclamation from John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God. I'm not sure, but maybe they would have went back. Those guys were familiar with the Old Testament. And I don't know whether they would have went all the way back to the forefathers and seen in Exodus 12 the, the story of the Passover lamb. Whenever there were, whenever death, they were at death's door, but there was this opportunity. They had this opportunity to take the lamb, to take the lamb and sacrifice the lamb, smear its blood over the doorpost. And uh, no kids about, hopefully, you're not listening. And smear the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. Whenever, whenever the angel came, they passed over where the lamb's blood had been smeared. Here was a picture of a, of a lamb that was sacrificed so that God's people would be set free. I'm not sure that they got that at this point. Maybe they were thinking of Exodus 29 because the, the, the pattern, the sacrificial pattern of Old Testament living was that there was two lambs set aside every day. One lamb for the morning, one lamb for the evening, and they were sacrificed to pay, make atonement for the sins of the people. Maybe they, they went back to that daily sacrifice for the sins of the people. They certainly would have been familiar with the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah speaking of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. In verse 7, he says that he was despised, speaking of the one who would come, the anointed one, the Messiah, the suffering servant. We're told a lot of th- incredible things, but verse 7 says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, and he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. We have the benefit, we have the hindsight of the cross, but John was already pointing to one who would, who would take upon himself the, the sin of the world, who would become the sacrificial lamb for all of humanity. Peter understood it. We understand. We get. Peter said in verse First Peter chapter one, verse eighteen. Peter says this: "You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but it was the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect." The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus. It was a sacrifice, and it was once for all. No more daily sacrifice. No more having to get a lamb twice a day, twice, once in the morning, once in the evening, have this daily sacrifice. Here was the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And the writer of Hebrews says it was once, and it was for all. See, I think that, that John, John was a unique man in every sense of the word. John the Baptist, sorry I'm talking about. John the Baptist was unique in every sense. His address, his clothing style, all of that. His dietary habits, all peculiar. But I think something of John, John understood that he would come. 
the Messiah would come in a way that we didn't expect. That the Messiah, this anointed one, would come in a way, would rescue us, would set us free in a way that nobody expected. I think John understood it. I know it get to the end of John's life, whenever he's about to have his head taken off, he starts to doubt, he starts to query, was this, was this right? Did I give my life for the right thing? But I think without the pressure of that, he understood that he was pointing to one who would come in a way that we didn't expect. And he would rescue and set free and redeem a people in a way that nobody would have expected. Behold, look, the Lamb of God. There's something about the incarnation that, that, is, that is staggering. Like he, Jesus, he comes, takes on our humanity, takes on our very nature. He doesn't send a committee. He doesn't send uh, anything else. He comes to fetch us himself. He comes to get us himself. He comes to take back what was lost at the fall. I'm going off on a bit of a tangent. I will come back. But I just want to say this. But Jesus comes back to take what was lost at the fall. This is, this is mind-numbing for me sometimes. All authority. We had been given the mandate to rule and to reign in Genesis chapter 1. Here was humanity made in the image of God given this mandate to rule and to reign with him. And in Genesis 3, we gave it away. We gave it away and here comes, here comes Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. Takes away the sins of the world. He's coming back to redeem, to take back what we give away. He's come to take back the authority that we give away in Genesis chapter 3 comes back and on the cross he takes back the authority that was taken from us. And what gets me every time I come to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 is that we give the, he gives us the authority, we've given it away, he comes back to take it once again and at the end of his life hands it back to us. All authority has been given to you. Now go. Incredible. Come back into this, this taking away the sins of the world. I love reading through. I thought of, uh, you think of uh, birth this week. For those that don't know, uh, Gareth and Joy were with us down here last Sunday morning. Uh, we prayed over them. We blessed them. And, uh, and Joy gave birth to a little boy and a little girl this week, Eloise and Isaac. And uh, when we celebrate life and we celebrate all the great things that it says about new birth and new life and Psalm 139, you were wonderfully and fearfully made. And what, what, what the Father has, has done and continues to do is just ascribe worth by simply creating us. He has attributed worth to each and every one of you simply by creating you. But it's not enough. He is, he is his goodness can never be exaggerated. His love can never be exaggerated. And he wants to show you even further how much worth he has ascribed to you. 
how much worth he has attributed to you. And he takes on your very nature and comes to dwell among you. Comes to live among you. Identifying with you. Taking on your very nature and moving into the neighborhood. As Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. He's describing worth to you by creating you. He goes even further to describe worth by coming and taking on your very nature. And if all of that wasn't enough, he ascribes worth to you by dying on a cross for you even when you were still in your sin. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in our sin, Christ ascribed worth to everyone. He said that they were worth giving his life for. Each and every one of you in this room, you were worth him, him creating. You were worth him taking on your very nature to come and live among us. You were worth him dying for even when you were still in your sin. And we watch, as you, if, if you were to continue to read through all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, if you were to read through them all, you will see over and over again, Jesus lived his life ascribing worth to everyone. Everyone he met, he was ascribing worth to them, especially those who were deemed to have no worth. Those who were deemed to have no value, no worth, it was those that Jesus went to ascribe worth to. In Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Jesus. Some of us that were at the castle on Friday morning, John took us to some of the characters that are in the the genealogy of Jesus, the list of names, his family tree, the family that Jesus came from, is Matthew chapter 1. And you know what? I love reading Matthew chapter 1. I haven't always, and I would encourage you to, f- to go to Matthew chapter 1 and you will find a chapter of the Bible that in my opinion is probably the, the, the chapter dripping with the most mercy. It, just is, it is oozing Mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And Jesus is, this is who he comes. This is the family. This is the dysfunctional family that he, that he is not ashamed to, to come into and to align himself with. They are, Matthew chapter 1, it's filled with old men. It's filled with deceivers. It's got wealthy landowners. It's got kings. It's got prostitutes. It's got a carpenter called Joseph. And this is the dysfunctional family that Jesus does not hide. See, the, the, back in the day, back in whenever this was written, when genealogies were written, it was like a resume. It was like, this is who I am. And you would have presented the line that you came from. And you used it as a CV to go and impress people. Look who, this is who I am. This is where I come from. This is what I represent. This is who I'm part of. And Jesus doesn't hide anyone. He doesn't hide anyone. He comes to take away the sin of the whole world. He comes to deal with the warts and all. He's come to take away the sin of the whole world and it's, why I love when I get to Hebrews chapter 2 when he says that I am not ashamed to call them brothers. I'm not ashamed to say that they're, fa- they're family. 
I'm not ashamed to say that I've come to identify with them and to redeem the whole family line. Not ashamed to call them brothers. Behold the Lamb of God. Wanted to touch on that. He takes away the sin of the world. Wanted to touch on that. He's ascribing worth to everyone, to every gender. He's ascribing worth to women. He is ascribing worth to those of a different status, to a different religion, to a different background. He is saying, I'm coming to take away, to remove the sins of the whole world. Warts and all. I'm not ashamed to say that they're family. I'm not ashamed to take them as my own. No one misses out. He redeems everyone. He breaks every social norm. I love Jesus. Behold him. Behold this man. Behold Jesus. Take a look at Jesus. Come in closer. Lean in. Come and experience Jesus. Behold him. Behold Jesus. I'm a real fan of, of, uh, of Tim Keller. He's an incredible writer. He's a wonderful pastor. Pastors a, a, a real trendy church in New York, and he is so not trendy, but he is a wonderful teacher, wonderful thinker. And as he, as he gathered his thoughts around the incarnation, the coming of Jesus in human form to a lost and broken world, he says that we're left with an intellectual crisis, or, sorry, an, inter, an intellectual, come on, an intellectual challenge and a, and a personal crisis. And there's this wonderful book that, that, uh, that I would recommend that you read. It's a really thick one. It's by a guy called J.I. Packer. It's called Knowing God. And I should warn you that if you do get J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, be ready. Like I, sometimes I read seven or eight pages and I pick up one thing. Sometimes you have to, to, to knuckle down a bit to find some gold. But there's so much gold there. Anyway, in, in part of his book, he says this about the Incarnation. He actually calls it the most staggering claim of Christianity. And he says that God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed, and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the Incarnation. And in his book, he goes on to talk about other, other doctrines of Scripture and comes back again to the Incarnation and says, once the Incarnation has been grasped, all other difficulties seem to dissolve. It's the most staggering claim of Christianity. And that's why Mary was able to say in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, what, a, what an incredible woman, young lady Mary is. And Mary, whenever she's told what's going to happen, when she has this encounter with the angel, she says, how can this be? I think the Bible, this is a polite way. Mary's really presented really politely. But I think it's a polite way of saying, this is impossible. This is crazy. How can this be? And I would love to suggest to you, that unless you have got to that stage, unless you have found yourself upon hearing the Christian message and at some point have found it staggering, incredible, I, 
am not sure that you have ever really grasped it at all. Unless you've heard it and have been like, wow, how can this be? This, is, this seems incredible. Unless you've got to that place upon responding to the Christian message, I'm not sure you've ever fully got it. This is the most staggering claim. It's the most wonderful claim. most incredible reality of the, of the Christian message. He says, so, so that's Keller. Keller's talking about this intellectual challenge, but the personal crisis is something that maybe for most of us in this room, it's maybe not so much of a personal crisis. But I wanted to offer it to you because there's family that you have. There's friends that you have. That the message of Christmas, the story of Christmas, leaves a real personal crisis. Because if he is who he said he is, if he is God in flesh, if he is saviour of the world, if in him is life, if he is who he said he is, saviour of the world, God in flesh, all the promises and claims that Jesus makes about himself, if it's true, you must centre your life around him. You must make him your priority. You must make him your goal. If what he says is true, you have to center everything around this man, around Jesus. But if he's not, you need to run. You need to get out of here. You need to stop wasting your time. If he's not who he said he is, you need to dislike him because he's a liar. And you need to run away as far from this message as you can if he's not who he said he is. There is no other response that makes sense. No other response to the incarnation of Jesus. No other response to the Christian message, to the Christmas story. Maybe you can offer me another response, but I don't think that there is any other genuine response than if it's true, I need to give my life to this. And if it's not, he's a liar. He's deceived me, and I need to get out. God is either, God is either, he's either God or he isn't. He's either absolutely crazy or he's infinitely wonderful. And the love that I've experienced is infinite wonderfulness. His incredible goodness. The reality of Jesus coming and identifying and making himself known. Making himself real. And that's why as we, the guys have already talked about next year. That's why I just want to do all that we can all that I can to center my life around this, this man. Center my life around this story. Give my life to Jesus. Give up everything to make sure that I follow hard after him. No other response makes sense. God with us. Emmanuel. God with us. And I don't want to be, I don't want to provoke, but it just does not stun us as much as it should. He's with us. God with us. Oh, that we would grasp the wonder of it again. God, please, for me, that it would stun me again. I want to finish off just by, um, by looking at what we read. As quick as I can. Behold, the Lamb of God. John stops everybody. Here he is. Here is this man. Here is Jesus. 
And John's still at it. He's still at it the next day. He's at it in verse 35. The next day, John is standing again. He's there with two of his disciples. And he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God. Here he is. He's, John is still in that place of being stunned. He's in that place of wonder. Here he is. He's with us. Emmanuel, God with us. He's saying, he's telling these guys, he's telling those that are around him, keep looking. He's saying it the second time, come on, keep looking. Stop, pay attention. Because if you pay attention, if you look closer, if you lean in a wee bit further, it's going to change your life. And I love that. I love. I just love what's going on here in these in, in these two paragraphs of Jesus calling out the first disciples. And this word, this word, behold, is is continues the, the the same the same Greek word is used right throughout this this uh, this chapter. And we're told that these two two disciples they did they came closer. When they when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And John says, John tells us that Jesus turned around and said to them. John, I, I thought that was a put it down phrase, but John has used it. I turned around and said to them, Jesus, Jesus, where's he in? Jesus turned around, Jesus turned around and said to them, what do you want? It seems like a strange response. We've seen that, we see that on further in the Gospels where the blind man comes to Jesus and Jesus says, what do you want? And I think that's, as, and I have this sense that I'm, I'm really looking forward to a message I believe God's burning in me, even now. I don't want to give any of it away because it's still just churning in me for the 1st of January. And I, I want the 1st of January, it's, I know it's New Year's Day, people are going to be tired, but I'm praying that there's just, just an energy in the room because I'm feeling that there's something about this year. And uh, I just feel like that's, that's the question he's asking some of us. We're going to behold, and that's good. It's good to behold. That's what we wanted to do in this season. We just wanted to stop, to come closer, to pay attention. But I think as we do that, Jesus is asking us the same question. As you come a bit closer, as you lean in maybe a wee bit further than you've done before, he's going to ask you, what do you want? He wants to see if you're going to keep on giving your yes to him. He wants to see if you want to, if you want to go further. If you want to go any further, if you want to come in any deeper, he'll turn as you behold and say, what do you want? He wants to hear your response. He wants to hear what, you want to, what, what it is that, you, that you're after. As you've stopped and you've gazed upon him, as you've paid attention, as you've came closer for an experience of him, he's going to say, what is it that you want? And I love the response of the disciples. They want to know where he's staying. Where are you staying, they asked Jesus. They just decided they want to be wherever his presence is. Wherever it is that you're going, let, let, we, just want to, we just want to be there. We want to come. With this, we've beheld. We did what John told us. We've beheld. We've looked at you. We've paid attention to you. And now we want to go where you're going. We want to go that bit further. We want to lean in that bit more. We want to experience something, uh, something greater. He caught their attention. And they went after it a bit further. Jesus says... He uses this same word, this or hor aho, is the word for behold. And he's, and come and see. This word see, it's the same word he uses. Jesus, in response 
to where are you staying in verse 39. Come and you will see. Come and you will experience something. Come in closer. He's inviting them further. He's inviting them deeper. Come and you will see. And so like Mary, I touched on Mary, like Mary, like John the Baptist, like these disciples, I'm just longing that we keep on saying yes to Jesus. Yes, where are you going? Where is it that you're staying? Where is it that your presence is camping out? Where can we go next and just keep on saying your yes to Jesus? They all did it, and I just want 2017. I just want to be surrounded by people who want to keep saying yes to Jesus. In, in the valleys, when it's difficult, I just want to be around people who will keep on saying yes to Jesus. Even in the, in the place of success, in the place of wonderful experience, I still want to be around people who are saying yes to Jesus. Wherever we're at, wherever we find ourselves, that we keep on saying yes to Jesus. We come on further. Philip has came in closer. Philip has lent in. Philip has experienced something upon beholding Jesus. He's went and seen. And that's why when Nathaniel comes along, Philip is able to say again, using the words of Jesus, Nathaniel, come and see. We beheld the Lamb of God. We beheld Jesus. And he invited us in a bit closer. And we've seen something more. He took us even further. He took us even deeper. It's true, Nathaniel. Come and see. Come and behold. Come and experience it for yourself. Nathaniel questions it a wee bit. Are you sure? I'm not sure. I've heard of the reputation of Nazareth. There's nothing good can come out of there. And I love that. I love that Jesus just blows any reputation out of the water. He did that when he came to this dysfunctional family. And he's done it again with the towns and cities and villages that we write off. We do it today. There's parts of our communities, there's parts of that map that we write off. That we write off because of reputation. And Jesus comes to sort all of that out. Jesus comes to redeem the most lowly cities, the most lowly towns, the most less thought of places. He comes and, and reveals himself to Nathaniel. And I just think whenever it gets to this part, Jesus is saying, you've believed because I told you. And he's pointing Nathaniel to something that he's going to see if he'll keep on beholding, if he'll keep on looking, if he'll keep on coming closer. He's going to experience the most incredible revelation. Jesus tells Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than that. Come and see. And as you come, And behold, and look, come in, lean a bit closer. You're going to see heavens open. Nathaniel, you're going to see the angels ascending and descending. What an incredible thing for Nathaniel to hear. If you keep on looking, Nathaniel, as you continue to behold, as you come close, there's more that I want you to see. There's another level. There's another dimension that I'm going to reveal to you, that I'm going to take you in on. I want to lead you into that. I want you to go further. I want to take you further. I want to take you deeper. And see, Jesus is doing this right at the start because he knew that he would be going. He knew that he would return again to the Father. He knew he would have to leave them. He knew that they would be his representatives on the earth and he wants them to hear like he hears. He wants them to see like he sees. And so we behold. 
I don't know who coined the phrase, but you will become what you behold. There's actually a, there's actually a survey has been done for long married couples, couples that have been married 50, 60 years because they've continued to look at each other, to behold each other, to gaze upon each other. The, their, their facial expressions become the same. The longer you behold, the more you begin to look alike like them. So I'm looking at Paul and Billy. You guys are looking so similar as you, as you look at me this morning. But it's real. It's true. It showed some pictures of people and their facial expressions, everything, their whole demeanor, body language, so similar. You behold, you will become what you behold. And so I think all that Jesus is doing is he's just bringing his people in closer. That your greatest need is that you be like me. The Holy Spirit is come. The Holy Spirit comes and is, and is, and what he's longing for more than anything else is that he would make us more like Jesus. So I'm praying that we would be like Jesus, that we would be worth ascribing people. We take on this incarnational ministry of Jesus. We'd be like Paul, who came to the Jews, and to the Jews he became a Jew. To those under the law, he became like that. To those under, not under the law, he identified with them and came and, and, and lived among them as one not having the law. That we would uh, be like Jesus. We become incarnational. There's a quote 500, from about 500 years ago from a lady called Teresa of Avila. It says, Christ has no body now on earth but yours. No hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ must look out on the world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. No hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ must look out on the world. And so we live in a day that we are part of the ongoing fulfillment of what Jesus established. Jesus established his kingdom rule and reign came to deal with our greatest problem, sin. And he dealt with it, and then he handed us back the authority to go into all the world and bring this message of Jesus. Bring a message of hope, a message of joy, of peace, of worth and value that I have placed on people. Go out with that message. And I think, but I th- I think he's doing even more than just this idea of beholding. I think it's incredible that we stop and we pay attention. But as we do that, as we lean in a bit closer, experience something a bit more, he's saying, right, come on a bit further. Let's go a bit deeper. I want you to experience something else. And Philip had experienced it and why he was able to say to Nathaniel, come and see. There's something about this man. There's something about Jesus. There's something about what he's inviting us in on. And as they come closer, Jesus is saying, I want to reveal more. In fact, you're going to get a, a vision of the heavens being opened and the angels ascending and descending in the Son of Man. It thrills me that he's inviting us in on that. That we would be the ones that, that are part of this ongoing, ongoing ministry, ongoing fulfillment of what Jesus had established. To see his life being given to all men, to see the light being distributed among all the nations. The people would know that they have this right. He's given us this, this ability, this opportunity to become children of God. It's staggering. 
And he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. Guys, I'm going to finish off. Um, Because I'm just going to keep wafting. This is staggering. This is incredible. 